The class of 2001 was hailed with a storm of lighting of fury on their entrance and exit for West Point. Graduating 101 days before the tragedy of 9-11, the class of 2001 served as junior military officers during the initial phases of the war on terror and increasing positions of influence over the next 20 years. Bound together for four years in school and together in service to our nation and their communities, these are the stories of those graduates as we look through the grave. Through the Gray has its first sponsor, Urban Industrial Northwest. Urban Industrial Northwest is owned and operated by my childhood friend, Greg Hostetter. Greg and I grew up playing in the woods and hitting each other with sticks. I joined the military and Greg joined the trades. We both love the outdoors and the Pacific Northwest. Please visit his site and see the amazing work he and his team are creating. Urban Industrial Northwest is a furniture and fabrication company specializing in handcrafted products using heritage lumber deconstructed by architectural salvage companies from structures dating back to the late 1800s to early 1900s. Everything from their powder-coated hardware to their top-selling reclaimed wood desktops are carefully constructed by their team in-shop to create one-of-a-kind statement pieces for your home and office needs. Check them out on their Etsy store, Facebook, and Instagram, or give them a call at 360-703-6936. And mention this ad for a 20% military discount on your order. And to top it off, shipping is free, straight to your door nationwide. Urban Industrial Northwest, giving wood a third life from tree to structure to an awesome piece of furniture. So there I was, spring of 1996, senior in high school, about five to six weeks out from graduation. I was looking forward to a summer break and a transition to college the next fall. I was accepted to Embry-Riddle Aerospace Engineering University in Prescott, Arizona. I had a three-year advanced designee scholarship to Air Force ROTC, and I had a wrestling scholarship for Embry-Riddle as well. I had plans to get a degree in aerospace engineering, to be commissioned as an officer, and to fly for the Air Force. Like many of my friends growing up in the 80s, movies like Top Gun, Iron Eagle, and Firebirds inspired me to military service. But not just military service, but military service in aviation. I'd served in scouts and become an Eagle Scout. I'd participated in Civil Air Patrol and got a taste of what it was like to fly a Cessna. And I'd wrestled throughout middle school and high school and was used to difficulties and struggles and pain to grow. So the idea of doing ROTC and then joining the military just made sense. That all changed, though, that day. I opened the mail, and I got a letter from the Department of Defense Medical Evaluation Review Board. Dodmerb is an Air Force body that reviews the medical readiness of every cadet going to a service academy or that is accepted into ROTC. And Dodmerb believed that I had asthma, and my scholarship melted away in a matter of seconds. All of that hard work that my father and I had done to prepare to get accepted and to set us on a path was in jeopardy. So I panicked. I went to the Navy, the Air Force, the Marines, and the Army recruiter in my hometown and tried to get us back on path. What could I do to prove that I didn't have asthma and that I could serve? When I spoke to the Navy, the Air Force, and the Marines, they couldn't give me a guaranteed path. It was all about the needs of the Navy, the requirements 
that the Air Force may have at that time and a little bit of luck? Or waiting another year to join the Marines as an 18-year-old versus a 17-year-old with my parents' permission? But the Army, the Army could guarantee me a path. They could give me a military occupational specialty, and I could use that military occupational specialty as a gateway to become a warrant officer and to fly helicopters. So six weeks out from graduation of high school, I made that decision. I signed a contract to enlist in the U.S. Army as a 67 November, a utility helicopter mechanic for the UH-1H. And three weeks after graduation, I got on a plane, left Southern Oregon, and went to South Carolina and went to basic training at Fort Jackson, South Carolina, beginning my Army career. So there I was, summer of 1996, 17 years old, 6'2", 170 pounds, walking into Fort Jackson, South Carolina to begin basic training. Prior to this point, I really didn't know who I was and what I was capable of. My experience at middle school and high school growing up, I was pretty average, or at least in my mind, I was pretty average. Academics, I was in the top 5% of my class, but I wasn't the top. In sports, I was pretty good, but I wasn't great. I had to work very hard. I had to cut weight from 175 pounds down to 160 pounds to make varsity my senior year in wrestling. And in scouts, yes, I'd made Eagle Scout, but both of my brothers and many of my friends also got very close or got Eagle Scout. And so many of the things I would hang my hat on as goals that I had attained or skills or achievements seemed pretty common in the crowd that I was running in. So when I reported to basic training, I expected it to be very similar. That's not what I saw. Somehow my experiencing with scouting, Civil Air Patrol, wrestling, my time in Southern Oregon, I did pretty well at basic training. From combatives to the bayonet assault course to pugil stick, I was at the top of the pack, vying for either first or second in many of the events where they had direct head-to-head competitions. For basic rifle marksmanship, I was the first soldier in my uh, battalion to qualify 40 out of 40. They actually gave me an Army Achievement Medal for that. And so as I got through the eight weeks of basic training at Fort Jackson, my opinion of myself and my opinion of how much success I could have in the Army changed. And my goals grew to match what I, I originally wanted to do, is get back on that path to become a, a warrant officer and to fly. So when I completed basic training, I got on a plane, I flew down to Fort Rucker, Alabama. And Fort Rucker, Alabama, at the time, was closing up shop for most maintenance training, but not the MOS that I was in. I was the second to last class for the UH-1H helicopter, the 67 November, to be taught at Fort Rucker. And the majority of all future mechanics would be taught at Fort Eustis, where they teach Blackhawks and Chinooks. The good thing about Fort Rucker, for me as an enlisted man, was our school for AIT was right next to the Warren Officer Candidate School. And so every day when I went to the mess hall, I saw an example of what I would be going through and what I wanted to do to earn the right to fly. And so that motivated me through the 13 weeks of AIT. Now, the next thing that really happened at AIT while we were learning how to be a mechanic on a helicopter is the difference in understanding the difference between 20 level and 30 level maintenance. And what we were getting trained to do at AIT was 20 level. So basically what you're doing is you're, you're learning to take a part off and put a part back on. You're not taking parts apart and fixing the insides. So you're taking a gearbox off, but you're not breaking open the gearbox and figuring out what gears are broken and replacing the gears. And so learning that process, the process of meticulously categorizing parts as you remove them from the helicopter, replace the parts you need to replace, and then put new parts back on. Over the course of 13 weeks, I learned a lot about maintenance and I learned a lot about how it is that you can do those things which appear from a distance to be very difficult. 
and to be less difficult when you have a system and you have a process. And again, a combination similar to basic training is, is I, I saw my confidence grow as what looked like difficult and insurmountable tasks with tools and the maintenance manual were broken down into a manner that was readily accessible and easier uh, to do than I, what you would initially would think. Towards the end of AIT, uh, the students within our class, our cohort, started getting PCS orders for their follow-on duty stations. What was unique about the UH-1H helicopter, the Huey, at this time, is it really only performed three functions for the U.S. Army. One, ceremonial activities, primarily at Fort Hood. Two, op for augmentation and replication at the CTCs, Fort Irwin, Fort Polk, and JMRC in Germany. And the final one was VIP escort at specific locations, primarily in Japan and at West Point, New York. I was notified that I was going to report to West Point, New York and Stewart Army Airfield just south of the campus. And so I graduated in December of 1996 from AIT, went home for Christmas break. And in January of 1997, I reported to Stewart Army Airfield and began work at the 2nd Aviation Detachment. So there I was, January 97, reporting to my first duty station, Stewart Army Airfield, just south of West Point, New York. I was received by my first team leader in COIC, uh, Staff Sergeant Jim Frazier. Now, Frazier set me up with a, a barracks room, showed me where to work, uh, and set us up in our detachment. The 2nd Aviation Detachment uh, was roughly a company-sized unit with four helicopters, about three privates, a couple of NCOs, and some flying warrants. And our uh, company commander was CW5 Dennis, a Vietnam veteran with probably uh, more flying hours than I was alive at that time. Sergeant Frazier sat me down and did my initial counseling, and he told me what I'd already started to hear at AIT, that the 67 November MOS was dying, and then I needed to transfer out and become either a Black Hawk or Chinook mechanic, or I needed to find another MOS or another way to, to advance my career in the Army. In that discussion with Jim, I told him my intentions to become a flying warrant, and he set up me along a path to start uh, getting college credits through the college-level examination program which by going to the education center for the battalion, I could clap out and get college credits based off of the knowledge I still retained from high school. So that's what I did. And so for the next two months, I clapped out of about four uh, classes through using study manuals and then going in and, and taking the online or the written examinations. Roughly March of 97, myself and two pilots flew down to Lakehurst, New Jersey. We were on a parts run and we were also going down there to coordinate with other pilots for later missions in that year. During lunch, I was sitting with the two pilots and one of them I had not recognized and I had not seen in the unit before. Major Brandon was the regular army recruiter for West Point and he was an aviator. And he was doing this run down to Lakehurst to get enough uh, flight hours to keep him current. So while we were talking and discussing uh, the army career and my goals uh, to become a warrant officer to fly, Major Brandon asked me if I had applied to West Point. And that was an easy answer, nope. I'd applied to ROTCs and I'd applied to uh, schools that I thought were within my skill group, but West Point was never one of those schools. I did not think that I was able to handle the service academies. And so I just never applied. Major Brandon replied, that is exactly what I do for West Point. And that's what he did in support of me for the next two to three months. I received and filled out the paperwork, did the essays, did the physical fitness tests, and even did a CO2 max test at West Point to demonstrate that I didn't have asthma 
and it would not affect my performance in the military. In late April, my packet was complete and it was forwarded, and all I needed left was to get the approval of my battalion commander. There are two ways to receive a nomination to attend West Point. One is a congressional nomination through your congressman or senator. The other is a service nomination from your chain of command, specifically your battalion commander. At this point, my battalion commander didn't know much about me. He had not seen me in action because of the physical separation between West Point and Stewart Army Airfield and only knew me by reputation. So we conducted the interview and it went well. And so he nominated me and submitted my packet for admissions. In the gap between finding out if I was accepted to West Point and if I would be attending that summer, my company commander, Chief Dennis, gave the one air assault school slot for the company to me. I reported to Fort Drum a week later and started the air assault course. The experiences and the memories of basic training in AIT were still pretty fresh with me. So the shark attack method that you see in the first couple of days of air assault didn't have the same impact. I just thought that's the way schools work. So I buckled down and progressed through the three phases of air assault. The first one being handed arm signals and general knowledge. The second phase being sling loading of equipment. And the third phase being repelling. The physical requirements of the course were just there in the background. What was really engaging was the knowledge I was gaining about helicopters, sling load operations. And as test after test was completed, both hands-on and written, I saw my class standings grow higher and higher. And at the end of those two weeks, I ended up being the honor graduate for air assault school, which was, again, unexpected for me. And I think it caught the cadre off guard as well. I reported back to my unit and my chain of command. And I think they were relieved that I performed as well as I did at air assault school. And I buoyed their confidence that I would do well at the academy. My final weeks at the unit were spent doing physical training, packing up my bags, and preparing for the transition to be a West Point cadet. The last task I did in preparation for attendance was to attend the practice reorganization day that West Point holds the week before the acceptance of the next class. My NCOs thought it would be negligent if we didn't attend the rehearsal and arm me with every tool possible for success. And that was true. The part that we had not thought through was that the very same cadets that were rehearsing on us would also be my cadre for Beast. And many of them would remember me and the two NCOs that they saw during the rehearsal. That wouldn't be a problem for my NCOs, but it would be a problem later on for me. A week later, my barracks room was packed. I was separated from the Army as an enlisted soldier after 11 months of service. And I walked into Mikey Stadium to start my West Point journey. I'd like to take a second just to, to highlight the role that the non-commissioned officers, officers and soldiers I served with at basic training, AIT, and the 2nd Aviation Detachment were to my success and following my path to become an officer. If it wasn't for the deliberate actions of my three drill sergeants, uh, McGuire, Pearson, and Morgan at Fort Jackson to encourage me and to push me and to help me see the positive effects of that hard work, I don't think I would have pushed as hard or got as much out of basic training as I did. If it wasn't for the NCOs and the drill sergeants at AIT helping me to learn how to do complex tasks through deliberate steps, processes, and procedures, and to help me identify what goals I should make for myself to have success in the Army, I wouldn't be properly set up to walk in the door and be successful at my first duty station. And I would be completely negligent not to highlight the role that Staff Sergeant Jim Frazier, CW2 Roy Capo, 
and CW5 Dennis, as well as Major Brandon, played in nurturing me, giving me the opportunities to achieve my goals through as many routes as possible. Whether it was Staff Sergeant Frazier helping me to clep all those classes so early, whether it was Major Brandon offering me a route to apply to West Point, or whether it was CW2 Capo, our test pilot, who put hours and hours into the physical training and preparation I would need to be successful at Beast Barracks. There, there's no way I could have done this on my own. And I'm deeply appreciative of their efforts. Thank you for listening to Through the Gray. If you like this episode, please give us five stars and follow our podcast. It helps us gain visibility and helps us share our stories.